0: So there's Fancy Bear, there's Cozy Bear, there's Turtle, Refined Kitten, Charming Kitten, Flying Kitten, and now there's Kitten Sec. AJ Descends, what is it with hackers and kittens?
1: Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're a cat person or a dog person, but cats are among the more nimble and graceful and Predatory animals in, in the world, so maybe it makes sense.
0: But I mean bears and kittens seem to play big in sort of the, the hacker world, especially you know, naming conventions and everything like that.
1: But why not why not dogs? I love dogs, but you gotta say they're not probably as bright as cats. So maybe there's a level of sort of Wow, that's gonna set
0: people off. Yeah. So now we're gonna have the debate between the dog and the cat people.
1: I love dogs. I love cats, I love all animals. But cats are maybe a little more sophisticated.
0: All right, we'll leave it at that. So you're going to tell us about KittenSec and this episode of Safe Mode, a new hacking group that you've been writing about and you've been tracking for a while. We're also going to hear from Juan Andreas Guerrero Saade, a security researcher at Sentinel One, and he's going to go off on Microsoft for a little bit. It's quite a fiery rant, and we're looking forward to it on this episode of Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode, I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud.
2: An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker.
3: She's a super hacker. Stay alert.
2: Stay safe.
1: Stay safe.
0: This is Safe Mode. So kitten sec, what is that a reference to?
1: You know, I'm not quite sure. Obviously, the sec is for security. And for years in the hacker culture, sec has been appended to a lot of words, right? So you think of wall sec or some of the other prominent examples. It's just a play on words. And, and in this case, kitten sec is just their fun way of, of talking about their, frankly, criminal activity. So when did this group emerge and what have they been doing? So they popped up on July 28th, and it hasn't even been a month. They came sort of out of nowhere, it felt like, with announcing an attack on Romania. And I took a look at the the download file, at least, and it's close to 30 gigs of, of data. But then I didn't quite know what to think. And so I was just sort of paying attention and saying the messages. And then over the last few weeks, it's really exploded. And they now have listed attacks on, obviously, Romania, Greece, France, Chile, Panama, Italy. And if their claims are to be believed, the data affects close to 13 million people, lots and lots of data. And they're one of these groups that doesn't extort these victims, as far as we can tell, at least publicly. They're just sort of pushing data publicly for fun and for attention. And on targets, they say deserve it. Obviously, the the entities on the other end of that would have a have thoughts about that or or a response to that. But this is kind of that weird gray area of the hacking culture where it's they claim to be doing it for altruistic reasons, but we never really know what we're fully dealing with here.
0: Yeah. So in your story, are you talking to members of KittenSec? There was
1: one representative I talked to to get the sort of lowdown on where they came from, whether they were new or not, how they sort of interact with the other existing groups in that space. And and they offered some answers. I mean, they said they, they claim anyway. They are new. They're not super focused on specific targets. In the case of Romania, for instance, they said, why not Romania, right? And, you know, of course, as you do. Of course, uh, why not? Yeah, Why not? But they also then added that it was an easy target. And they wanted to fight corruption and the lies from government. So we decided to attack them. So I don't really know what to make of that. I guess you could make that claim against any government in the world, right? Depending on your perspective. So it's hard to know exactly who we're dealing with here.
0: Yeah, that's the case when you're you're writing about a lot of these groups, right? It's hard to know who is actually on the other end of the keyboard. So when you're writing about whether it's a group called KittenSec or any of the other interesting names that the hacker groups come up with for themselves you know how what's your process like of determining the validity of what they're saying or who they say they are how do you treat that
1: well that's a great question because it's really difficult honestly this one was flagged by a sort of well-known hacker personality in the space and so that led me to sort of take a look and then Their material was also being cross-shared by a group called SiegeSec, who we've covered a fair bit, another group that has launched attacks that have sort of come from a place of idealistic action. I mean, they've gone after states in the U.S., for instance, for their anti-trans legislation, for their anti-LGBTQ sort of efforts. So they've positioned themselves as a group crusading against politicians and whatnot, On the other side of that conversation so when that group pushed this group's uh new stuff when the other hackers sort of shared it then it's like okay people are noticing this and maybe i should take a look and then you start to read through what they're saying and who they're targeting you're trying to evaluate whether there's any patterns in the victims any sort of consistency in the message and and all of that seems to be relatively consistent so far You know, I did ask them, given that Romania is a NATO member country, it feels reductive to sort of flatten everything to the Ukraine-Russia situation at the moment. But I had to ask, and they said that that particularly has nothing to do with it, but they also want to attack more NATO countries because they view NATO countries as violating human rights generally. So, you know, it's like a very mixed, nuanced bag there. But then you can also sort of differentiate them from the overtly pro-Russian anti-NATO hacking groups, which are much more transparently either working in conjunction with or directly for Russian security services. And there's been a lot of industry research on... The sort of publishing patterns, the technical infrastructure, the other links to overt Russian messaging efforts and sort of laundering information and pushing messages, those sorts of things. So you kind of have to check all those boxes and see where you think they might land and and go from there. So
0: at what point does a group like SiegeSec or KittenSec fall into the hacktivist category? Which would be hackers, right, with a political point of view who aren't necessarily trying to attack a target to steal money or steal data, but to make a statement.
1: I mean, I think that's exactly it. You look for indications that they're trying to extort these companies, like, you know, like ransomware operators we see a lot. We also see just pure selling of the data, saying, you know, if you look at a place like Breach Forms, who we've discussed on the podcast, I mean, some of those people are just stealing data and selling it outright. In this case, these types of groups hack targets, grab data, and just publish it. And they say, here's some information. We think that this contributes to the conversation about a particular group, a particular target, a particular nemesis in their view, and you know, do with that what you will. They did sort of list their cryptocurrency wallet and they said if anybody wants to support us they can but we publish these data sets for free so you know maybe it's just kids having fun but it gets kind of murky pretty quick because one person's sort of hacktivist is another person's criminal straight up
0: right and so for so for the people who aren't following the ins and outs of the packer underground and where the, the, in the forums and all this just general murky world that you wade in and out of what's the important takeaway from a story like the kitten sec story their their emergence why is that something that people should care about
1: i think it's just another reminder that companies governments anybody that's doing anything online really at sort of a, a scale You know, I'm sort of separating out like mom and pops or like your home computer setup, right? But if you're doing anything online, you have to assume that somebody might target you at some point. And it's not clear how Kit and Sec got into some of these targets, for instance, but almost always you end up reading about poor configuration or standard credentials, you know, like username, admin, password, one, two, three, four, very basic cybersecurity hygiene that isn't adhered to that leads to these kinds of compromises and especially when you're talking about the government level and the geopolitics of NATO and that kind of thing you have some major cyber adversaries out there right like the APT groups and and others but you know there's this uh, sort of criminal side of of hacktivism that is a threat too and people should be aware of their sort of tactics and why they're going after certain people and who they're going after and the patterns there, and you know, if you're a sort of a network defender, you need to be aware of what's happening in that ecosystem.
0: Always fascinating stuff, AJ Sends. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. So we're going to get into an interview next with Elias Groll, CyberScoop's senior editor, and Juan Andreas Guerrero Saade, who is a researcher with a cybersecurity company called Sentinel One. He does a lot of amazing work. He's also known, perhaps more commonly as By his initials, JAGS, they're going to get into Microsoft and we're going to hear a very unvarnished, candid, frank conversation with JAGS and Elias about feelings within the security research community about Microsoft, especially after the revelations of a Chinese hack that was carried out in part because of vulnerabilities in Microsoft systems. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com slash security to access resources and expertise to get started today.
3: Well, hey, we're at Black Hat. We're in Vegas. I'm speaking with Juan Andres guerrero Saad, but I think you'd like to be referred to as Jax. It's much easier for everybody. I mean, much easier. I even... Pronoun- I messed you up the pronunciation you of your name just now. So <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. So in the last couple of months or a couple of weeks, I've been reporting on this big breach affecting Microsoft, a breach in which Chinese hackers are alleged to have stolen an encryption key used in the Azure Active Directory to sign for authentication tokens. The hackers in question used this stolen key to target the email inboxes of senior U.S. officials and steal their emails, including the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, and the U.S. Ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, at a critical moment in U.S. foreign policy when they were preparing for a big meeting in China. And the security community has been up in arms about this breach, and you've been one of the people who have been criticizing Microsoft over this breach. I'm wondering if we can just start with you kind of explaining what it is that you find so frustrating about this breach from a security perspective.
2: So I'm glad to see more folks sort of discussing the topic at this point. I did feel when I went on my little unsolicited tweet storm, it felt like not a lot of folks were breaching the subject, not a lot of people wanted to talk about it, and to be completely honest, it's not like I'm dying to tilt at windmills. Like I, the silence was uncomfortable because it's not just any company, and it's not the first time that we're at this. But I, I think the the concerns we have with uh, Microsoft, I think it's really important to caveat that there are concerns that we have and could discuss about google and apple in equally meaningful ways not just because they're mega corporations but rather they're also ecosystem maintainers so any notion that this is at least in my case some kind of competitive play and kicking your competition when they're down it you might say that if we were talking you know XDR company to XDR company. If we were talking, well, well, let's say if we were an endpoint telemetry company to another endpoint telemetry company, then, you know, you can talk about sort of the usual mudslinging. But the reality here is all of us need Microsoft to succeed. We need them to succeed. There is no way for any of us to layer on security, do any kind of monitoring, do any kind of genuine introspection if the ecosystem itself is kind of falling apart or unresponsive. And at this point, you're talking about Microsoft having two ecosystems. It's no longer just the Microsoft of old that had just Windows. And and this was when we're at Black Hat, right? Famously, Black Hat and DEF CON were just a place to kind of jump up and down on Windows security for more than a decade. But what we're looking at now is Microsoft having Azure as this spot of like universal regency. I can't secure Azure for you. No one can secure Azure for you. Microsoft has to secure Azure for you. That is the premise of buying into a cloud environment. And it's a compelling argument, right? In this day and age, the notion that you are going to run your own email servers and keep everything patched and keep everything maintained and you know, you have to have your own security team to do the latest, greatest bit of research and configurations and make sure that everything's right. It's unrealistic for most organizations, not just small orgs, but most orgs. One of the recent issues, and I guess I'm kind of ranting a little bit, but like Hafnium, which preceded this latest crisis was... What was Hafnium? Real quick for folks who don't know. Frankly, Hafnium, it's a terrible name for what happened because it's what Microsoft calls a threat actor that just kind of pops up out of the blue with a chain of zero days, presumably stolen because a researcher was about to publish that here at Black Hat last year or the year before. I can't keep track anymore. And there was some suspected Chinese threat actor that already had the Oday chain and was using it to exploit Microsoft Exchange servers that were on-prem. So in many ways, It was kind of a defining moment of this cloud play to say look at you laggards that have decided to stay on on on-prem microsoft exchange this is what happens somebody gets a zero day and you know they're popping every microsoft exchange server on the internet now I say it's a bad name because in some ways, from a threat intel perspective, it's sort of frustrating that we didn't get nearly enough detail about that group. Most folks were not able to follow which particular group kicked that off because that exploit chain subsequently gets shared with every other Chinese threat actor and eventually makes its way out to like every ransomware group. So essentially, if you still had this unpatched Microsoft Exchange environment by day, I don't know, two, three It was just a host to anybody who could drop a web shell and want to do anything. And you know, the original group got lost in in that noise. Relevant to this particular event, though, most of those folks were told, "Well, you should be migrating to the cloud. You should be running your Active Directory, running your email, everything through the cloud in Azure, and that way Microsoft can protect you and make sure that you're at the latest bit of patching and the latest version of things." and and you have this great set of research teams and incident response teams, and everybody's on it. And it's a good pitch. It is, it's, it's a very good pitch, and it's not one that I begrudge them. I cannot look at a smaller org and in good conscience tell them to host their own servers. That doesn't seem like a responsible thing to tell them. However, the other side of that coin is that we're living in a regulatory environment that's practically non-existent at this time when it comes to tech companies particularly big tech companies, but really any tech companies. The government, for a variety of different competing reasons, has no teeth whatsoever with these companies, worse yet when it comes to their own contracts with Microsoft, with Google, and so on. And when it comes to the cloud, that puts us in a pretty bad place. Because frankly, it's the ultimate scout's honor to say, I am going to give you All of my data, I'm going to depend on you uh, for all storage and availability and co-location and every service and the scalability of my organization to the point where there are many orgs that don't host anything themselves anymore. It's all on the cloud. And I am going to expect in good faith that you're going to tell me if anything goes wrong. More importantly, you're making sure you're looking to see that nothing is going wrong. And, you know, in a more of a a business oriented mindset that you're not going to gouge my prices up next year. And all of a sudden I'm sort of locked into this environment that I can't afford. There's a lot of faith involved in that. I'm ranting like, you know, God, you know, reel me back in if I'm sort of going (laughs) off the rails here. But
3: well, okay, so let's bring it back to kind of what started this conversation, right, which is the most recent breach, the theft of this encryption key and it's used to pop these email inboxes of these these senior US officials from a technical perspective the theft of the key and the use of the key to forge authentication tokens what was it about that that was so upsetting to folks in the security community
2: well i'm not sure take your pick right cuz That is a layer of security that is entirely dependent and in the hands of Microsoft, right? Like To the point where I struggle to tell you how that works, not just because I'm not in auth as a specialty or particularly oriented when it comes to crypto, but rather because how would I know what that stack and that configuration looks like within Microsoft? I have no way to genuinely tell you. I could sit here and study every doc they've ever put about HSMs and key management or whatever, and I'm sure that I would still not know how this works because I'm not supposed to. You're not supposed to. That's the, you know, it's not security through obscurity, but you're sure as hell not going to give somebody a map about how, and, you know, how the locks work in your house. So in many ways, I think that's part of what fuels the consternation. It's saying, well, we have to rely on you for this. But if there's anger rather than just concern, I think it has to do with repeated incidents, with a feeling that the many gains that Microsoft made, you know, in the years after the Bill Gates security memo and the Dan Gere monoculture paper and all of these hard fought cultural battles like Katie Masuris helping to stand up the first bug bounty and like all these things that people really had to fight for to get Microsoft to an, an amazing place where you could say. Hey, it's not that easy to pop windows and, and have zero days all over the place. And, you know, you have a working bug bounty program and they get along with all the vulnerability researchers. And they, you know, they used to have a party out here for the vulnerability researchers. They used to have did a Did you get
3: invited this year?
2: I did actually get invited to a Microsoft party this year and I I'm not able to attend. I'm but surprised. I thought that was incredibly kind of them. I, I <laughs> I don't know what they had planned uh, <laughs> for me. I don't know if Brad Smith is just waiting there for like no uh, dunk you in no. slime. It's incredibly kind, but no, no. I look. I I don't want. If we had the time and the inclination to pick a battle on multiple fronts and surely lose, we could have this conversation about Google. I've worked at Google before. There's all kinds of issues at Google, and same with Apple. I, like, if you want to see my blood boil, let's talk about iOS security and all the choices that are being made at Apple. Yeah, we round to <laughs> some, some other time round know, two. when the next crisis comes along, the yeah, next absolutely. time, you know, a series of O days are used against an ethnic minority in China. And we pretend that we didn't notice we can talk about that. Let's be fair and do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But since today is Microsoft Day, it's their turn in the barrel. It's yeah. Well, look, the security community tends to rally around itself. We may be really catty on Twitter and give everybody kind of a hard time. But at the end of the day. Particularly on the blue team side, there's a lot of practitioners who feel for their brethren. And I've had some folks come out and say, well, why are you, you know, they're dealing with this horrible incident. Why are you jumping up and down on them? And that's really a misunderstanding of what the issue is here. The problem isn't that Microsoft has had a breach. Everyone has had breaches at some point. Everyone will have breaches at some point. This isn't the first Microsoft breach, and it wouldn't be the first for many, many companies out there. The problem that we have isn't even about their response. It isn't even about their blogs. It's the fact that there's this air of like corporate abnegation of responsibility that has set in when it comes to the management of vulnerabilities, when it comes to the management of incidents that in many ways should fall squarely on the lap of Microsoft, like Hafnium, where you say, well... You have an update mechanism. This is your software. You've been studying the infection chain for a long time, much longer than any of us. Um, Why aren't you force patching these systems? Why aren't you evicting these web shells? Why, Why does some faceless guardian angel in the security community have to take on the liability and risk to try to sort this thing out inevitably three weeks too late because someone at Microsoft chooses to avoid the liability for themselves, to avoid being sort of leading the charge in a situation like this. And I think that's getting more to the heart of it, that we are seeing Microsoft expressly take on security as a business. You know, Satya is is out there talking about how it's gone from 5 billion, the next year it's 10 billion, the next year it's 15 billion. I think the projections for this year are $20 billion in revenue in cybersecurity.
3: It's already $20 billion—that They hit that number, I think, end of last year.
2: Good for them. That's great. My concern is that it puts us at a level where the conversation is, well, security vendor to security vendor. You are not a security vendor. You are the maintainer of one of the ecosystems that we as security vendors need to protect. And I'm glad that you, you know, you're making some money off of this, but we need you to not backseat drive the crises. We need you to actually lead in these situations and take the responsibility. And in the failure of that, in the absence of that, what you see is a lot of people actually turning to the government and saying, why aren't you regulating? Which is fairly unusual in the United States. Most folks, at least, you know, with with any corporate leaning, would just balk at the idea that government should get involved in any way. But we're at that point where everybody's just going, hey, you know, where's the teeth? When do you give them even the slightest hard time for how things happen, you know, after solar winds and how things happen after hafnium and how things are happening after this?
3: I think the frustration that you're describing is, I guess, bubbling up in cyber policy world, right? You saw this in the White House strategy document. They want software liability reform. And I think it's probably things like this that they have in mind when they want to go after a change in the software liability regime, which has been this third rail in cyber policy for decades. The idea that you could get sued for having problems in your software, right? Like that's been, you know, the, the software industry, every time that gets proposed has said, you know, has has gone running to the hills saying this is going to destroy our, our industry. And now I think the frustration that you're expressing and a lot of folks in the industry are expressing is, I think, coalescing behind some momentum to try to do something on the policy front and get the government more involved.
2: I think there's a general feeling of impotence that comes with particularly the side of the industry that feels responsible for dealing with every crisis. We're at Black Hat, and I don't want to jinx it, but This year, so far, we don't have some nuclear bomb going off somewhere in cyberspace that makes everyone have to run out of their meetings and run out of their talks and sit on their laptops on conference bridges trying to fix things. And I'm happy for that. But it's been happening year after year. Every other week, there's some astronomic breach. There's some new discovery of a problem here and there. And what it is, and we shouldn't consider that this is happening, objectively happening more often. No. We're becoming aware of it at a different pace. We are becoming aware of the realities of this threat landscape at a different pace. And and for anybody who doubts that, go look at every one of these breaches, every one of these blogs, and just look for the earliest date that they're attributing this activity to. And if we're lucky, it's six months. So let's be honest that it's the speed at which we're becoming aware of things is increasing, which is great. I mean, that's actually probably a, a relatively positive metric. But it means that we're becoming more and more aware of just how poorly we're collectively doing at security. And this isn't the time to look at the companies with the most outsized capability and responsibility, taking a seat and going, well, you can't force me. And if you were trying to force me, it would take three weeks. So go deal with it on your own. Like there's sort of like a smiling bastard Hall of Fame approach to stonewalling a crisis call by saying, well, you know, our lawyers say you can't compel us. Why should we? So you talked earlier about you needing Microsoft to
3: succeed. I'm wondering if you can kind of elaborate on that a little bit and break that down. Because a lot of folks are going to say, Jags, Sentinel-1, you're competing with Microsoft. And as Microsoft gets bigger, as their slice of the pie gets bigger, Sentinel-1's slice of the pie is going to get smaller. So, of course, you're angry at Microsoft, <laughs> but you say that Microsoft needs to succeed right.
2: in the ecosystem. So, yeah, break that down. What is? I mean, th- that's why I kind of hedged it from the beginning, because you're not the first person to say that. And, you know, I understand it. There's so much vendor mudslinging here that it's an inevitable expectation. But again, I think that's built on this false parity between security vendors that bolster and offer greater security visibility greater log searching capability storage whatever you want to call it any capability that you're adding on it's still dependent on the security scaffolding of that environment and to precisely speaking to that point and another point of contention with microsoft rootkits are a thing that we haven't had to deal with very much in the past, I don't know, eight years or so since driver signing enforcement got added. And I want to say that was 64-bit Windows XP. It may have been Windows Vista. In any case, some time ago, somebody decided that drivers need to be signed with a digital certificate. Otherwise, they cannot run by default. That is one of the most important measures that makes it so that we don't have to deal with rootkits. That was an unalloyed good to security within the Windows ecosystem. To the point where many folks have forgotten about dealing with rootkits. As of two years ago, a researcher, I believe his name is Karsten Hahn at GData, suddenly noticed that there was a Microsoft-signed piece of malware, driver, that was coming out. And once we started digging on it, it turns out there were many, many, many within that same pocket. And it turns out that at that point we found out that Microsoft had changed how driver signing was supposed to work and now you had to send it to a portal of theirs and they would sign it and send it back, but now it would come with a Microsoft digital certificate, which is kind of horrifying. Essentially, if you go check that digital certificate, you're going to see it's like a third-party signing cert under Microsoft's name. Most AV... EDR, anti-malware, antivirus, endpoint detection, whatever you want to call it, companies were not prepared for this because they weren't really told. But more importantly, because it was unthinkable that we would suddenly see these cryptographically validated, quote-unquote, Microsoft signed binaries. That was 2021. We're still seeing digitally signed, under Microsoft digital certificate, binaries starting to pop up to this day. And they haven't been super devastating pieces of malware, but for us, it's an erosion of a fundamental piece of security scaffolding within the the environment, the Windows operating system, that we all of a sudden need to start double and triple checking for every single binary in an operate, you know, in the Windows operating system to say, well, yeah, you're signed by Microsoft, but is it the right kind of signature? Is it the right kind of subkey? Are you in a banned list of subkeys? Is the banned list of subkeys complete? Do we know, even though you're a Microsoft binary, Should we still be concerned that you're hooking certain functions or doing certain kernel things that other things might not do? It breaks the fabric of whatever foundation you're supposed to build your certainty on. So, look, if this is a problem for us, it's a problem for everybody. And that's at the point at which I resent the notion that we're speaking security vendor to security vendor with Microsoft. The idea that we are in competition, we may be in competition in one particular vein, but the truth is that their remit is so much larger. It's so much bigger and so much more foundational. And what we offer is different, and I I happen to think it's great, but in many ways it has to build on top of the solid foundation of what Apple and Microsoft and the wonderful unresponsive graveyards of the Linux world, are doing for their operating systems, right? Like we do a lot of work to have very stable, very compute efficient ways to have introspection and insight into a variety of operating systems. That's a lot of work without having to also double and triple check that the operating system itself is working. So I assure you, I want them to succeed. I want them to do well. I would much rather hear from all of the vulnerability researchers and their side of the industry saying oh yeah we still have great relationships with microsoft when i hear that project zero researchers are getting sent through the usual yeah like the which i mean i say that considering them the cream of the crop as far as like finding days and exploits and reporting them and getting them fixed and, and trying to do their best to advance collective security i mean project zero is an amazing project but to hear that they aren't getting any better reception or better treatment from MSRC, from anybody that's supposed to be patching vulnerabilities, that you're getting sent through a ticketing system is ridiculous. To me, it just highlights an erosion, a systemic erosion of the importance of security throughout these ecosystems. And I hope that there's some objective way to call that out and say, hey, like, I'm glad you're pivoting and you're trying to find a a different way to approach this, but there are foundational things that you can't be asleep at the wheel with. In some of your commentary online,
3: you've talked about how there's some silence in the computer security world, computer security research world, about the problems at Microsoft. Can you talk a little bit about that? The folks aren't speaking up. The
2: Yeah, I think
3: that folks are unwilling to criticize Microsoft.
2: I don't know if folks are unwilling to criticize Microsoft in particular as much as it's uncomfortable to criticize any of the mega companies right now. I am in a very privileged position to be supported as much as I am by S1. I'm sure that there is a PR person that cringes every time I start tweeting because I've just given them a different headache with some company 10 times the size of the moon that is suddenly very upset at us. I think it's a very difficult situation to expect most people in the security industry at a time when there was just another layoff, like two layoffs, at two other security vendors announced today to stand up and say, hey, you're really screwing this up, and to name names and to say, that time that we had this meeting and we were trying to do incident response and you acted in this and that way. Those are tough things to call out. under the best of circumstances. I know I'm not going to go get a job at Microsoft anytime soon. But the notion is not... Well, you'd be inside the tent pissing out. uh, You know, I've, I've tried to do the whole, like, fix it from the inside notion. Look, there's something there. I hope wonderful people go work at all these places and do great things. But the truth is that in a public company universe where the only thing that matters to anybody is share price and it's not even long-term share price it's largely did the stock fall in the last two weeks it is incredibly hard to do anything without the greatest level of executive support
3: Mm. do you think that as the tech industry consolidates and as the big corporations in the tech industry gain ever more market share and in some ways become less responsive to customer concerns as a result, that security is, ends up being one of the victims in that process of corporate consolidation and growing market share among the mega caps, really, is what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about
2: Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon. Look, consolidation is definitely a part of things, but it isn't the most important part in this particular issue. If anything, I would focus on a slightly different flavor of that, which is issues of monoculture, which Dan Gere, like the OG philosopher of cyber. yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, he's I mean, he's fantastic. And, and any time you spend studying his work is time well spent. But I mean, he got fired back in the day for writing that paper. So when, when you ask me the question about like, why people don't want to speak up, Dan Gere got fired back in the day for writing his paper about monoculture. And it was very prescient, and it was a warning about the consolidation of the environments in general. In a way, monoculture is redefined and amplified in the age of cloud. It's the ultimate monoculture. It's literally living within the same house, built of the same bricks. But I think there's a more important point here, which is that in no other industry, as far as I can tell, have we seen people choose to over index and over invest on security without having their hand forced car companies didn't decide that mandatory seat belts and airbags were the most important thing to put their money on and when they were just trying to sell cars we didn't reach the state of almost sublime air travel where at some points you have almost no accidents on planes Because Boeing and Airbus decided of their own volition that they were going to be such sticklers for security and process. You do need a certain level of regulation. You do need a certain level of even just level setting. What does it mean to be a security conscious company and one that has repeatable processes and is actually investing the right amount? And it's very hard in cyber. It's very, very hard to quantify these things. But if you're near zero, I think we can say things are not working well. Again, it, it sort of it keeps all roads keep bringing us back to this notion of where is government, where is regulation in this space, but also where is the leadership in these big companies that says that has to say, yes, it would be nice to add another dollar to our shareholder price. But if you could just hold up for three quarters, this is more important. You can't give us the thoughts and prayers of security and fire half of your security team and then tell us that you're doing great. So let's make you, I don't know, a dictator for a couple of months. What would the JAGS regime look like? What would the JAGS cyber regime look like? Am I king regent in Gov or in a private sector entity like Microsoft?
3: Let's start with the private sector and then we'll make you a real dictator.
2: Oh, God. Okay. And honestly, I haven't really had to think about this, which kind of tells you a lot about the security space, right? That it's easier to complain than it is to propose solutions. But look, when it comes to being in some position of supreme leadership within a mega company in the private sector, my answer will sound naive because there's politics and all kinds of concerns. But the problem that we have right now in corporate world is that leadership has been dissolved effectively in the tech sector we just saw the first generation of original like og founders walk out of most of the big companies and you know except what Zuckerberg. honestly like look at the dynamics in the tech space the companies we knew that grew super successful up until very recently were still run By the original founders, people that could stand up in a boardroom and say, as Sergey Brin did, we're not going to do business with China because they tried to screw us in this way. And, you know, they hacked into our organization and we're just not going to, we're not going to kowtow to the CCP. Awesome. Great. That entails a certain level of ownership and authority that enables leadership. I guess the shareholders were not going to go up to Sergey and say, get out of your own company. I think it's much harder to do that now that we see the second generation of leaders who I'm sure are trying their their best, but it doesn't necessarily feel like they're home, doesn't necessarily feel like they're beyond being ousted. And I think it's creating a culture in tech where it is just very hard to find somebody who's willing to say, you know what, I might lose my job, the stock price might dip $3 tomorrow tomorrow. But we need to take a stand on how we're doing business with China, in this place, with this you know, software environment, with our margins in the cloud, whatever. So I suppose what I'm describing is a bit of a suicide mission. <laughs> but it's the notion that if I am the ultimate owner of a cloud platform that is subject to abuse, that is the hoster of attack infrastructure that is enabling all kinds of other badness, right? Like the cloud tenancy is enabling the corporate world to to expand and do great things. It is also simultaneously enabling attackers to do many, many things. And there's this notion that if we just like had KYC in the cloud or whatever, that that you'd fix that. It's not, absolutely not. That is a terrible idea.
3: KYC, that's know your customer for the uninitiated.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, terrible, terrible idea. But it's not gonna fix it because, what you really need is for that cloud provider to decide that it is worth investing into checking the integrity of their cloud systems and making sure that the people using their, those servers are the people paying for those servers and that they aren't hosting a vulnerable version of WordPress that suddenly makes that server work on behalf of someone else. And when that does happen, changing the terms under which you approach that server. I am glad we have terms of service and privacy preservation. I'm not happy when we use, quote unquote, privacy as an excuse to abnegate responsibility for infrastructure in our care that is being used to attack other people. That is just hiding behind your TOS. It is not privacy preserving for anybody, much less the person that's paying for that server that is being commandeered by someone else. So I think that in the absence of strong leadership that can look at their legal departments and say, thank you for advising us, but we're going to do this other thing. What you've allowed to build is a very calcified legal regime that overreacted to GDPR, overreacted to the post-Snowden privacy crisis, and now has decided that The only way to play is not to play at all. And there is no liability in just sitting it out. And that is leading us to a pretty horrific place where we have to look at the government, which, look, the government is not ideal. I think everyone knows that. I think anytime Congress has tried to do anything when it comes to cyber, they have created many other problems unintentionally. So I'm not pretending that they're great. I'm just saying, if nobody's going to stand up on one side, then please God, somebody on the other side tried to do something.
3: Okay. All right. So let's do the government side of it now. You're now a real full fledged dictator and you have a cyber regime to administer in the world. What does that look like?
2: I'm glad that you say dictator, right? Because the realities under which people in the US government are operating are even harder than.
3: Right. We have a US Congress that has a very difficult time passing legislation
2: yeah that's tough. I think in general it's just it's very hard to get things done and to take big stances when you know whatever it is you're going to do is going to piss off one of these companies that has great lobbying power and so on and so forth so being a dictator i think is is sort of ideal in this situation, and it goes to show why China has a slightly easier time with like domestic enforcement of uh, security issues. but I think there's a few different concepts where we need to kind of gird ourselves and make some, some difficult choices to enable defense in meaningful ways. When you start talking about like, you know, secure by design, stuff like that, it's like, I, I, don't know, I don't even know what that means. It, it, like, I don't know how you enforce secure by design. If these people knew how to build the software better from the start, cheaply and quickly, they would have done it, I'd like to think. I hope, <laughs> right? But no, the, the, what you're really talking about is software liability. Right. Like, and again, a Dan Gere idea from his 2015 Black Hat keynote. He talked about it. What does software liability look like? What does intellectual property protection look like if you decide that you're no longer maintaining your code base? Why do you still own it then? So can I get your source code and fix it? If you're not maintaining it anymore, if it's, you know, end of life, can I get the Windows XP source code and fix it myself so that these power plants don't fall apart? with eternal blue or whatever it is, that's one way to look at it. I think there's also notions of like eminent domain that we need to start exploring. And these were conversations we had during the, the ideation for like the drafts of the national cyber strategy. And some of it kind of percolated into the text and some of it didn't. But the idea being, if you have an abandoned house, you own a house and you just let it fall apart and it catches on fire or, or something else, you know, really endangering the neighborhood, the government eventually gets the right to do something about it. If you leave a car in the middle of the highway because it broke down and you can't afford to haul it, somebody, some governmental entity, has the right and the ability to pick it up and take it somewhere else. Why do we not have that or something similar when I can look at 40 million cameras created by the same manufacturer that have a hard-coded password that have suddenly been turned into a ginormous botnet that literally is... Taking down the internet in the East Coast for hours at a time. Whose rights, like what are we protecting here? Like, at at what point do you sit back and go, okay, well, let's be honest, right? The owners of these cameras don't even know this is happening. The manufacturer doesn't care because they've already made their money selling this thing. And the last thing they want to deal with is this old piece of hardware that even they are trying to disavow themselves of. So at what point do you go, all right, we're just gonna knock all these things? off the internet or come in as a myth like take these things down. And the last bit is really and this is sort of the carrot instead of the stick is liability protection. Sort of the the notion of having a strong sense of liability is you're saying, well, you have chosen to be responsible for this. And there's potential like you get more freedom, but whatever consequences are on you. Well, the other side of that is Hey, if you come to us and you say, this is happening, or I would like to proactively engage with you to make things better, then we will offer you protection from liability. And I think that's a really meaningful thing. If these mega companies and even midsize companies don't want to store telemetry data, do not want to move PII in any way, are worried about privacy concerns with whatever services they're offering, and all of those things make them just choose to sit back and do nothing, then you can at least offer the carrot of saying, hey, if you come play, if you come sit at this table and do your God's honest best effort to protect the internet, to protect citizens, to protect your users, and so on, we will shield you from the liability of what happens with whatever PII may have been involved, of, you know, whatever second and tertiary effects might come from this. And I think in those moments, you can finally look at a company directly and say, hey, they gave you an option and you're choosing not to take. Right now, what we're saying is they're not helping you out too much, but we really wish you would kind of like take life in your own hands and decide to do the right thing. And that's a harder sell, right? I mean, the trade-off that you're describing is exactly the
3: one that's in the the White House cyber strategy, more or less, right? They want to say... We want a liability regime where you, you can get sued if you engage in neglect in building your product. And if you follow some set of secure by design principles, <laughs> whatever those are, then you won't get sued. That's what they like to do, right?
2: Yeah. I so
3: Do you feel like that is the, the way that it's articulated in the strategy is kind of captured what, what you're describing or no? Because it sounds... It sounds like you're kind of on the same page as them, uh, but it obviously won't become a real thing until Congress passes it into law. And so right now it's, it's just an idea on paper, I think is worth emphasizing.
2: So I really appreciate the way that the ONCD went about codifying the national cyber strategy. They engaged a lot of us. They brought us in. They were super kind. That's the office
3: of the national cyber director. Yes.
2: Yes. At the time under Chris Inglis now under Cumber Walden, it was amazing. It was great. They brought a lot of folks in from different parts of the industry and engaged and did read-throughs and listened to what we were saying, and you come to, to check out the next iteration, and they had taken into account what you said. It was wonderful. So I do feel a certain soft spot of, you know, I see the effort that went into putting it, and it was the right impetus, and it was the right idea. At this point, I have to say that my favorite part of the National Cyber Strategy is the introduction. Because that's where you most freely see the intent of the folks crafting national cyber strategy, which is, I think it's brilliantly put, at this time, the economic dynamics of the space do not reward greater investment in security. So, of course, people are underinvesting because if you spend more money trying to make things secure, but you make less money than the competitor that couldn't be bothered, you're obviously not going to do great. So let's find a way to change that dynamic. I think that was sort of like the spirit, the way that I read it in the intro. It's a lot harder once you start getting into the nitty gritty of things because everyone has their pet project and every, you know everyone in government wants to kind of put their five letter acronym that should be in charge of X, Y, and Z. And then the implementation it gets even worse, right? Like everybody else sort of like jumps into that train. But I think the heart of it is the right one. I don't know that the levers, like when you tell me about Secure by Design, That's such a vague heuristic and one that you can easily turn into one of those like BS compliance check marks that I don't think it's the right lever. It's very different when you start to put the liability squarely on the outcome. That's scary. What that entails is having to reconsider what it means to be the software owner and maintainer and sole regent of a code base. Well, yeah, there's other, look, we forget there are other ownership and financial regimens in the tech space, right? Like there's things that are completely open sourced and then you get companies like Red Hat that make tons of money just being the sole supporter of a thing without owning necessarily all of the underlying code base. There are many ways to go about this business. I don't think anybody bothers to consider them because right now, why would you not choose to be the sole owner of your intellectual property? Why not? But if you're telling me that every critical infrastructure supporter in this country is probably running with like a janky Windows XP setup and they're scared to sneeze around it because if if they do, power is going to go out to two neighborhoods. And then, you know, the company that maintains it goes, hey, it's been 20 years. We're done maintaining this software. And you go, oh, now what, right? Like who's going to make patches for us? Who's going to make optimizations for us? Who, how do they have to go reverse engineer the entire code base of Windows XP? Or can you say, hey, if you choose to no longer maintain this, it's time to open source it, right? Like I'm not saying that's exactly the right way to go about it, but I think that there are some bold steps that could make meaningful change and they're not technical steps. They're policy problems. Well, we've spoken much
3: longer than we said we would. So I think, that's a nice, I think that's a nice place to end, actually. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Chacks. Hey, Elias here. We reached out to Microsoft and they got back to us with the following statement. We agree that security is a team sport where researchers, cloud providers, and others work together. Security is built into all of Microsoft's applications and services, and we acknowledge that our job keeping customers and systems protected is never over. In the face of increasingly well-funded and targeted attacks by advanced actors, we remain committed to sharing threat intelligence, transparently mitigating vulnerabilities, expanding built-in security features, and innovating at scale with AI for cyber defense. We also have global teams working around the clock to protect customers and take action against cybercrime infrastructures.
0: This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google, together Mandiant with Google. Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. And share it with your friends, your mom, or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.